following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me facing a terminal 
disease. We are, as Christians in North America, infected with a fatal terminal disease. Not only are we infected, but the American church is infected. If we do not find a recourse, a treatment for this terminal disease, the church in America will go the same way the churches of Europe have gone, the churches of France and England and other parts of Europe where Mohammedism, Islam, has swept the church clean. It has taken its life. How is that possible? There is a belief that when a man is converted, he is pardoned for all of his sin, past, present, and future. That hereafter he cannot lose his salvation, he is secure, even while he is in the midst of wickedness. That is not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that when a man is born again, when a man comes to Jesus Christ, he is made into a new creature. And that word new in the Greek literally means something that has never before existed. It is unique like a snowflake. There is none other like him. It includes his personality his character. It includes every part of that being. It is a person made new. Now, too often, because of the terminal disease we face in America, we have said that when a person comes to Jesus, says a little sinner's prayer, that that person is now saved and we have said, as a modern American church, that that is all there is. But in the scriptures, we find a great deal more than just a person being made new. But in the modern church, a man is not even considered as having been made new. He simply, as one bumper sticker says, the only difference between you and me is that I've been forgiven. Saying we both are sinners together. We'll both always be sinners, but the only difference is I've been forgiven and you haven't been because you didn't receive Jesus. Of course, this is the height of utter folly. I'd like to share with you from a book entitled Holiness and Power. Holiness and Power by Aaron Hills. He wrote back in 1896. Let me read for you what his concern was. When Jesus rose from the dead, the whole church of Christ 
could assemble in one upper chamber. At the time of his ascension it numbered 120. Of all the ages of history, it was the age of universal corruption. Outside of Judea, idolatry reigned supreme. Gods and goddesses representing every phase of vice were openly worshipped in magnificent temples and at costly shrines. All power was in the hands of a magnificent and heartless imperialism. The masses were sunk in hopeless degradation, without means, without learning, without protection, and sixty million of them in the Roman Empire were held as slaves. Aged parents were suffered to die of starvation. Children were exposed and murdered. Men fought each other as gladiators in the amphitheaters and died by the thousands for the amusement of the cruel populace. Every precept of the moral law was violated without conscience and without hindrance. The early disciples had no wealth, no social position, no prestige, no government aid, no help from established institutions. They were in themselves a despised and feeble folk, without influence, without skill, without education, without a New Testament, or even the Old Testament in the hands of the people. They were without Christian literature. There was not one single Christian house of prayer. Pomp, power, custom, public sentiment, it was all against them. They were reproached, reviled, persecuted, and subject to exile and death. But those early Christians had the help of an indwelling, sanctifying Savior and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And with that equipment they faced a hostile world and all the malignant powers of darkness and conquered Within seventy years, according to the smallest estimate, there were a half a million followers of Jesus, and some authorities affirm that there were a quarter of a million in the province of Babylon alone. In other words, with Holy Spirit power upon them, they increased more than four thousand fold in threescore years. Is it too much to say? Too much to believe that if the Protestant churches and ministry had a similar anointing of Holy Spirit power today, we could take the world for Christ in ten years? We now have thrones and governments and protection and favorable public sentiment. We have hundreds of billions of dollars in the hands of Christians. We've established institutions and organizations and all-needed facilities. The Bible is printed in 400-plus languages, and Christian literature is in abundance like the leaves of the forest. We have everything desirable for doing Christian work, but the general endowment of the Holy Spirit 
but without that, alas, how feeble comparatively when measured by the first century are our Christian triumphs. It's plain. There simply is no remedy for the modern church except that we come back to the basic elements of piety. We must return to God and Holy Communion. The standard of piety must be raised. What can the church do for the conversion of the world, for her own existence even, without personal holiness? Much deep, pure, personal holiness. No wonder that a conviction of this truth should have fastened upon discerning minds with painful strength. The standard of piety throughout the American church is extremely and deplorably low. It is low compared with that of the primitive church, compared with the provisions of the gospel, with the obligations of redeemed sinners, or with the requisite qualifications for the work to be done. The spirit of the world has pervaded and taken over the heart of the American Christian church. Go through the land. Estimate the unconsecrated wealth. Measure the energy of worldliness and the apathy of love and prayer. For the proof, there is extensively a public sentiment which rebels against personal holiness. The church doesn't want to hear about personal holiness. This broadcast is much, much more popular in Japan and Ireland and other places than it is here in America. How is that possible? We, the land of the free, have turned our backs in the church on holiness. So many who are converted today are not converted at all. Conversion is that immediate response to the preached word where we say, I will leave my sin. I will repent now of every known sin and I will be made new in Jesus Christ and sin is left behind. The old timers said pardon meant I left my sin. Today, receiving Jesus Christ means I get all the benefits of heaven but I keep all of my sin. God means to impress men by the contrast between the holiness of God's people and the wickedness of the world. Some people say to me with great courage, oh, I want people to just look at me and see the difference and then ask me questions and my testimony will then be, look at how different I am from the world. The problem is they're not different. I asked one man some years ago 
who said, I don't talk to people about Jesus, I just live my life. And I said, well, how many sinners have come and talked to you about living your life? He said, none. I said, well, then it must be that they mistake you for themselves, that they think you act and look and talk just like they act and look and talk. Is that possible? He was deeply offended. But after some thought, he said, yes. Now that wonderful old preacher, Dwight L. Moody, I want to read to you what he said. Nine-tenths at least of the church members. This was many years ago. He's saying nine-tenths at least of the church members in America never think of speaking for Christ. If they see a man, perhaps a near relative, just going down to ruin, going rapidly, they never think of speaking to him about his sinful course, of seeking to win him to Christ. There must be something wrong. And yet when you talk with them, you find they have faith, and you cannot say they are not children of God, but they have not the power, they have not the liberty, they have not the love that real disciples of Christ should have. A great many people are thinking that we need new measures, that we need some new church styles, that we need new programs that will attract the lost. That's not what the church of God needs today. It's the old power that the apostles had. That's what we need. When we have the Holy Spirit, again, God will see that the work of the gospel goes forward in America. But that means utterly turning away from our sin. That means repenting of the false teachings. I read in Second Corinthians, the fifth chapter, beginning with verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation." Well, there can be no reconciliation if there is no repentance. If there is no turning from sin, there can be no reconciliation with God. Colossians, the third chapter, verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, he talks about all the sin for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. He says in verse 8, put off 
anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Verse 13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave, so you do also. And above all things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness or perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you call, are called to one body. Be ye thankful. Now, if you look also at First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, the third chapter, verse 12. And the Lord make you increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. Furthermore, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification." You're being made holy. He says again, you should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and in honor. And then if you look at chapter 5 in First Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 23, he says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the will of God that we should be sanctified wholly and utterly given over to Jesus Christ in holiness. If you look at Romans 15, verse 16, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. So we now have a very clear declaration that it's God's will and purpose that we should be sanctified or made holy, and we are informed by whom that great work is done in us, and it is the Holy Spirit. Now, Let's look at this honestly. I'd like you to take just a moment to think. Take just a moment and reflect. Don't hurry. Can you solemnly say with an honest and prayerful heart, My God, I believe that by your Holy Spirit I can be sanctified or made holy. Do you believe that?
can you say that? And can you also honestly say, I believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for me the sanctifying fire. Are you willing that God's blessing should be done in you and for you? Are you willing to be both sanctified, made holy, and filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you willing to leave the terminal disease behind and receive the the only medication that will cure you of the cheap shallowness of the American way of life? And that is humble repentance before God and asking for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Are you willing to say, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in me as it is in heaven? Are you willing to be made willing there's a piece of poetry that I read and I want to share it with you. Laid on thy altar, O my Lord divine, accept this gift today for Jesus' sake. I have no jewels to adorn thy shrine, nor any world-famed sacrifice to make. But here I bring within my trembling hand this will of mine, a thing that seemeth small, and thou alone, O Lord, canst understand how when I yield thee this, I yield my all. Hidden therein thy searching gaze can see struggles of passion visions of delight all that I have all that I am all that I hope I can become deep loves fond hopes longings infinite it hath been wet with tears and dimmed with sighs clenched in my grasp till beauty it hath not. Now from thy footstool where it vanquished lies, the prayer ascendeth. May thy will be done. Take it, O Father, ere my courage fail, and merge it so in thine own will, that even if in some desperate hour my cries prevail and thou give back my gift it may have been so changed so purified so fair hath grown so one with thee so filled with peace divine i may not know or feel it as my own but gaining back my will may find it thine 
I want to ask you today, are you walking in sin? Are you walking in lust of the flesh? Are you committing adultery? Are you caught in fornication? Are you doing drugs? Are you getting drunk? How are you with Jesus today? Do you salve yourself with discouragement and despair? Are you filled with unbelief? Are you trying your best and failing? Are you lying at work? Are you cheating? Are you stealing? Are you filling your life with the cheap entertainment of our day? Are you sitting in front of the television and drinking in the poison of wickedness? Are you willing to give your will to God today? Are you willing to be converted today? Are you willing to be made into a new person today? Are you willing to be made willing about everything? This is a matter of conscience between you and God. How long will you resist the Holy Spirit? Are you resisting the Holy Spirit? And will you now choose to stop resisting the Holy Spirit and allow Him to convert you? And I'm using a broad brush today. Once you are converted, are you willing to walk away from that sin and not go back to it by the power of the blood of Jesus? And then are you willing to go on into entire sanctification? We should be willing to forsake every sin that we know and also the sin that we do not know. I believe God means what he says when he calls us to be as Jesus was separate from sinners, holy, harmless, undefiled if we confess our sins that is if we confess our specific sins and we take full responsibility for them we make no excuses for them because you see God will never take away a sin until you're willing that it should be taken It doesn't matter what it is. Is there a touch of sin about you? Are you contentious? Are you filled with strife? Do you cut off and separate from others because you are angry with them? Let God search your heart and he will show you anything sinful and impure in your soul 
And then will you make this pledge? As though you stood in the very light of the judgment bar of God, will you surrender that sin to Jesus Christ? Can you today say, Yes, I will leave my sin today, now, right now. I will leave my sin right now. No more. I'm done. I'm tired of it. I'm sick. I believe that you can forsake every sin and now you need the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But yet it will not quite come because God not only deals with sin, he deals with those parts of your life that you consider to be good. Many fail here. There are things we call neutral. Things that people say to me, Pastor, what's the harm in this? What's the harm in that? It's innocent. No, it's not innocent. The friends, the ambitions, the money the time, the talents, the entertainment. They must all be turned over to God. God called Abraham to bring Isaac to the altar. He left the next morning taking Isaac to do exactly what God had commanded. Don't hesitate here. When you have brought your sin before Almighty God and you have confessed specifically all of those items of sin, take the next step and everything that is good in your life, deliberately put it before the throne of God and surrender it. Bring out the very best things that you have and lay them on the altar of God. The money, the time, the talents, the friends, the husband, the wife, the child, your wisdom, your wealth, your strength, it all comes to Jesus. General Booth of the Salvation Army wrote this. This consecration has in the nature a real sacrifice. It is the presentation or giving away of all we have to God, a ceasing any longer to own anything which we have hereto called our own, but all going over into God's hands for him to order and arrange and are taking simply the place of servants to receive back again just what he chooses. Now please understand what I'm saying to you today. When you are converted, when you repent of your sin, that's not enough. A part of conversion is the surrendering of everything that I am and everything that I have into the hands of Jesus Christ. 
I don't add Jesus to an already wonderful life. I give up my wonderful life into the hand of Jesus. If you have not done that, you have not been converted. You are still a lost sinner. It is His will that we should be sanctified wholly. It is His will that we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, it's quite shocking to me. I recently began to examine the life of a number of different people that I've been close to through the years. And I was quite shocked because all of them would say that they are committed Christians. But not one of them had brought one person to Jesus Christ. There's something wrong. They are infants. They are ignorant of the call of Christ. They have either not been taught correctly or they've walked in rebellion. For service is the very essence of the redeemed life. I lay my life down to Jesus. I give him time, talent, ability. I don't then go out and begin to build my own business for my own money and my own honor, thinking this will take care of me. No, Jesus is the one who's to take care of me. I go out now to build that business for Jesus Christ. And I speak to my employees and I speak to other people. I speak to the delivery man. My whole goal is to win a soul to Jesus Christ. And if I've won no one to Jesus, I don't understand the gospel. I've missed it. And I need to go back and be converted. A man who has never won someone to Jesus is not a converted Christian. You've believed a lie. If you have not the power, the strength to win the loss to Jesus, it's because there is sin in your heart. And it must be dealt with. I bring to Jesus as a new convert everything I possess, and I ask him to order and arrange it. I ask, I ask for simply the place of being a servant, to receive back what he chooses to give me back for the work of the gospel. You see, until this change occurs in our understanding and our thinking, we have the terminal disease of believing we are saved, and we are Christians, and we're on our way to heaven, but we're not. We're not saved. If you have no fruit born, you are not saved. If you are not bearing witness for Jesus Christ, there's hidden sin in your life. It's no easy task what I'm calling you for. And it can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
but it means that everything I have must be laid on the altar. Body, soul, spirit, goods, reputation, everything. Consecration is being crucified with Christ. It means dying to all those pleasures and gratifications which flow from the undue love of self, the admiration of the world, the ownership of goods, the love of kindred and friends to an inordinate degree that causes me to feel secure with no holiness. So what makes up the life that you live and what makes up the joy of your life? Have you been crucified with Christ? If you have not been crucified with Christ, you have not been converted You cannot live with Christ if you've not been crucified with him. Mrs. Catherine Booth, on this same issue, wrote, a lady a short time ago was brought to the very edge of this blessing of sanctification, but there was something she felt she ought to do. She had a sum of money which she felt ought to be given to a certain object. She prayed and struggled and attended prayer meetings and prayed long into the night, but no, she would not face the difficulty. She said, Oh no, I'm not satisfied in my own mind. How do I know God wants it for that purpose? She might have struggled till now if she'd not made up her mind to obey. But the moment she made up her mind to obey, up in her bedroom, the blessing came. Do you see it? As long as you hang on to yours, to your right to be contentious, to your right to be in strife with others, your right to be right, as long as you maintain that you have some life outside of Jesus Christ you have no life in Jesus Christ how can you believe who receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh only from God There's a story told that I'll share. It's an old-timer's story. It was told by Dr. Daniel Steele. He says, A friend became sick in Paris. He sent for a physician in the city who, after a careful diagnosis, informed his patient that he was being attacked with a fatal fever, then seemingly prevailing in the French capital. He said to him, you will soon lose your reasoning ability and you will sink into a state of coma from which you will probably not rally. But I will do my best to carry you safely through this deadly attack of fever. But you must make a will and deposit it with me. You must put into my hand your trunk and its key, your watch, your purse, your clothes, your passport, Everything which you prize, you must give to me. 
the sick man was thunderstruck at such demands by an entire stranger who might administer a dose of poison and send the patient's body to the potter's field and appropriate the surrendered treasures to his own use. But after a moment's reflection, he recognized that the demand was made out of pure benevolence and that it was more safe to trust himself and his possessions to the hands of a man of high professional repute than to run the risk of being plundered by the hungry hordes of hotel servants. So he gave to the physician the will and all of his goods, and he put himself in charge of the physician. The physician sat by his bedside, as this man slowly sunk down in a delirium and a coma until he was utterly unconscious. The doctor watched the ebbing tide of life with all the solicitude of a brother, and with his medication at last he saw the tide beginning to turn and detected the first wave of life that began to bring the sick man back to the shore. The man recovered, and he found his purse and his treasures restored to him. It's just a story, but it reveals what you must do if you would avail yourself of salvation in Jesus Christ. You must make your will and give it to him. You must commit your purse, your wallet, to his keeping. There must be a consecrated pocketbook always with a sacrificial heart. There must be a real work, a genuine work, and you must put yourself and your possessions and your reputation and your future into Jesus Christ's hands by all acts of consecration and then believe that he will do his work without any assistance from you. You cannot improve your own condition. You cannot expel the dire disease of sin from its hold upon your vitals. Jesus only can free you. Are you who read about the gospel of Jesus Christ, are you willing to give up your life to Jesus and consecrate everything you are to his hand? Can you honestly say, I will make this sacrifice and I will be converted and I will, by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, leave my sin? You see, I really am not much concerned about what you say. I'm much more concerned about what you do when you're in secret. I'm concerned about what you do in your computer when you're alone. I'm concerned about the violent video games that you feast your heart upon. I'm concerned about whether or not you have made this honest decision to turn to Jesus Christ.
Now, I'm so concerned about this that I'm asking 100 of you to give $100 to begin the process of taking Pilgrim's Progress to an FM station, Wava FM. Right now, we're simply on the AM dial. The audience is much larger and the expense much higher. If 100 of you will give $100 this month, it will buy the first month's radio broadcast on the FM dial. This is Pilgrim's Progress, and I'm Ray Greenley, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. I preach immediate repentance and an instantaneous new birth in Jesus Christ that enables you, the sinner, to stop sinning. We preach a Jesus who saves us from sinning and as a result saves us from hell. We preach the gospel that Jesus taught when he said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go now and sin no more. It's the gospel that Paul taught when he said, How shall we then that are dead in sin continue any longer therein? It's the gospel that John Wesley preached, that Jonathan Edwards taught, that Charles Finney and Maria Woodworth Etter, all of the ancients, this is what they taught. This is the true gospel that brings revival. If you want revival in Washington, D.C., will you now become one of our 100 builders? One dear man has stepped forward. His first name is Ron. Ron, thank you for the first $100 as a builder. I'm asking now, would many of you come forward? 100 of you will pay for one month. Are you willing to sacrifice for the gospel of Jesus Christ, this straight and true gospel that calls you to be converted and to be sanctified and to be filled with the Holy Ghost? If so, would you go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, nationalprayerchapel.com. I also want to urge you, and I mean urge, I urge you to come to the National Prayer Chapel this coming Sunday at 12 noon and begin to pray with us. We are a small group of people who are forming the foundation for revival for Washington, D.C. If you know you need to get right with Jesus, that you need to be converted you know that you need to change your life. Or if you know that you are utterly sold out to Jesus, but you're tired of the whole church game today, and you desire to be a part of something that is pressing for revival in this city, then I invite you to come. But I also am going to invite the half-converted to come. Those of you who call yourself Christians, but you've never stopped sinning, and you need people to pray with you and to earnestly hold you accountable and call you to follow after the Master. Come to the National Prayer Chapel this Sunday and be prepared to deal with Jesus in love and compassion and mercy. 
Now we have just a couple minutes left in this broadcast. I want to pray with you. Almighty God, I know that some of those, yea, even most of those listening to this broadcast, you're calling to repent, to leave their sin. But there are others who have left their sin but now need to go on to entire sanctification, who need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, it's not enough to just leave sin. We've now got to be enabled to be missionaries, to be witnesses for you, to call the lost and the dying. Lord, would you come now? Would you move in the heart of your people and those you are calling? Almighty God, I trust this broadcast to you Lord, I have no power of my own. It is all yours. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your mighty name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. Join me again tomorrow. We're going to dive right back into this topic. You're welcome to be here. Invite a friend to listen with you. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ.